In this episode, I'm going to be reading chapter 13. Put your mind to rest. Take a deep breath through your nose. Hold it. Relax every, everything in your body while exhaling slowly. Another deep breath through the nose. Hold it. Release over every bone in your body. Feel yourself sinking into the bed and listen to the story as it unfolds. August 15, Hospital Number 5, Washington. When she got to the Hospital Number 5 that night, Dr. Hammond seemed as if he did not quite know how to act toward her. Sarah was still in uniform. That seemed to bother him. Have you no other clothes? He asked. No, sir. She spoke in her normal voice now, not in the deeper one she'd affected while playing the part of the soldier and he noticed that right off. You've been feigning a man's voice. Yes, sir. That must have been a strain. Yes, sir. Times it was. He nodded and sighed. Tomorrow we meet with Pinkerton. Tonight you sleep in the room where I keep the medicines. Auntie Narcissa is making up a cot for you in there now. Have you eaten? There's a pot of stew on the fire. She ate and went to bed in a small room the size of a closet. Next morning, there was a complete outfit of woman's clothing laid over a chair. Everything from under things and stockings to a skirt, blouse and plain straw hat. There was a basin of water, small bar of scented soap and a container of sweet smelling powder as well as a comb and brush. Sarah was startled at the thoughtfulness of whoever had done this and touched. The clothes were freshly laundered and ironed. The skirt was dark blue, sprigged with tiny pink flowers. The shirt waist she recognised as a Garibaldi blouse, the kind with no collar, but a little puffing at the top of the full sleeves. She hadn't had on girls' clothing 
in months now. She supposed she was to put the things on. So she washed herself and got dressed. Then peeked out into the main part of the hospital. The male nurses were already going about their morning chores. The men were up and several nodded and smiled at her as they were having their breakfasts. Some of the nurses did too. To them, the sight of a woman in the hospital was a welcome sight. She helped herself to a cup of coffee. Auntie Narcissa was cooking on the stove and gave her a broad smile. Well, those clothes fit just fine. Did you get them for me? Sarah asked. The woman nodded her turbaned head in the direction of Dr. Hammond, who was changing a man's bandage at the other end of the tent. Yes, but he told me just what to get, right down to the comb and brush. She chuckled. Here, have some breakfast. Gonna be a long, hot day. She sat and ate in a corner of the hospital and before she was finished, Dr. Hammond came over with some nurses to give them their orders for the day and go over some instructions. Again, none of the men recognised her and when they left to go about their duties, Dr. Hammond glanced at her, sat down at his table and said without looking up, well, you've passed the first test anyway. Sir, still, he did not look up but was intent on his writing. The men didn't recognise you. They should count as something if you'd be a spy. But then, you're an expert at fooling people, aren't you? There was a hard edge to his voice and it made Sarah want to cry. Sir, I'd hoped you wouldn't stay angry with me for what I've done. I'm not angry, disappointed, perhaps, but not angry. Are you finished with breakfast? Yes, sir. Then let's get on our way to meet Pinkerton. Sarah did not know what to expect when they drove through the streets of Washington in Dr. Hammond's trap. Pulled by a horse, he kept in a nearby stable. But she thought they would go to Mr. Pinkerton's office, wherever that was. He spoke little on the way, but as the group of ducks scattered in front of them, he did say one thing. 
You don't have to do this, Sarah. I have the authority to send you to Dorothea Dix. I don't want you further endangered. I'll be able to handle myself, sir, she said. Make sure of it. If you decide not to go with Pinkerton, come back and see me. Sarah promised she would. Then they pulled up in front of Thompson's drugstore. Dr. Hammond led her to a glass top table. Just as they sat down and ordered some of the confection, a man in a plaid coat, bowler hat, and full beard sat down with them and ordered some vanilla ice cream. This is Mr. Pinkerton, Dr. Hammond said. He is known here in Washington as Mayor Allen. Mayor, this is Sarah Wheelock. Immediately, Sarah recognized the man who'd stopped her and Nubin on the street earlier on the same day she'd gone to Dr. Briscoe's house. I've heard of your exploits, Pinkerton said. You must have excellent acting abilities, my dear, to have lasted nearly three months in the army without discovery. It is to your credit, and I've been told you are an expert at mimicry. That little skit you put on for the soldiers the day the Comte de Paris saw you. You played Topsy, did you not? Yes, sir. It is the best here, he said, referring to the vanilla ice cream. And when it came, he spooned it delicately into his mouth while he spoke. I understand he left home to get away from domineering father. Why didn't he just run away? Why join the army? I wanted to serve my country, Sarah said simply. In my service, you will serve your country better than on the field, Pinkerton said. I have several female operatives. If you agree to come aboard, you will go in training with the head of my female detectives, Kate Warne. She is a resourceful and dependable woman. She has never let me down. And after about a week with Kate, if she approves you and you agree, I have a special assignment for you right here in Washington. Sarah nodded. She liked Mayor Allen. He was the modest and gentle. And when he spoke with reverence of his female detectives, she was astonished. She agreed to work a week with Kate Warren. Good. 
Mayor Allen smiled. If you will stay here when Dr. Hammond and I leave and order another portion of ice cream, she will be along directly and take you in hand. He stood up. I understand Dr. Hammond has taken on the role of your protector. My dear, you could have none better. But once in my employ, you may not contact him. If he wishes to keep track of you, well, that's his business. Is that to your liking? Never in all her life had Sarah had anyone ask what was to her liking. She said yes. Dr. Hammond and Mayor Allen stood. Mayor Allen paid the bill, nodded at her and left. Dr. Hammond stood there in his rumpled linen jacket, his cravat a little upsided, his straw hat in his hand. Well, Sarah, he said, so we come to a parting of the ways. A sense of loss tore at her insides as she looked up at this dear man who had been so good to her and who felt so betrayed by her deception. I'll make you proud, she said. Keep safe. That will make me happy. He held out his hand. Sarah had never shaken hands with a man before. She'd seen women having their hands kissed by men and always thought it a bit silly. Now, she stood up and reached her hand across the table. Dr. Hammond's hand was firm and strong and Sarah felt honoured by the gesture, most honoured than any pretentious hand kissing could make her feel. Then Dr. Hammond turned on his heel and left. Sarah ordered more vanilla ice cream and waited. One of the best things about working at the 7th Street Ferry House, Sarah decided, was that the cooling air of the river fanned your face. One of the worst things was the smells. Washington was full of smells in the summer, from open sewers, pigs roaming the streets, and cattle and horses of the army. But, yeah, in the southwest, Washington, which was divided from the rest of the city by the old canal, you got the full complement of river air at the confluence of the Potomac and the eastern branch. It was called Greenleaf's Point, here at the foot of 6th and 7th Street, Sarah could see the red brick spires of the 
Smithsonian Institution, as well as the steamboats and sailing ships that brought people to and from the railroads at Alexandria or Aquia Creek. Some of the boats made the voyage to the Chesapeake Bay and the ocean beyond. People of all kinds came and went, and the normal smells here, including that of Swanspool, the poor Irish colony in the nearby marshy tract, were carried on the river breeze. At Kate's instruction, Sarah carried a lavender-soaked handkerchief with her to put over her nose when it got especially bad. Their job was to search women who were given off and going on the ferries. They searched for contraband inside their dresses at their bottoms in extra large bustles behind their dresses, even in their hair. Sometimes that contraband was messages, sometimes it was opium or quinine to be smuggled south. Women make the best spies, Kate told her. They have so many places on their person to hide things. Kate was a widow. She'd been with Mayor Allen since. So, when she walked into his Chicago office one morning and told him she wanted to be a detective. At the time, she was 23. Now, five years later, she was slender, brown-haired, and had a pleasant face that was attractive. Sarah decided more for its lovely intelligence than its look. You should have seen Mayor Allen when I walked in that day, she told Sarah. He was so amazed at the idea of a female detective that he said he had to think about it. When he said he stayed up half the night, conjectured and wondering why the notion hadn't come to him first. Kate treated Sarah like a sister. She brought her to her rooms on 8th Street, gave her an allowance for clothing, and helped her assemble a wardrobe that was in keeping wish with her needs. She savoured friendship, but it was not easy to find. Sometimes other detectives came to Kate's room on 8th Street to prepare notes, to exchange information or just to talk. Sarah had already met Hattie Lawton, another female operative, as well as Seth Payne, John Babcock, who'd been a crack shot with the Stargis Rifle Corps in Chicago, and John Scully, who'd been born in England. Some agents were now being behind enemy lines. One time, 
Timothy Webster had been sent in June to Baltimore to lay pipe with the disloyal T's. Hattie Lawton had posed as his wife and Webster was responsible. Sarah learned for giving Pinkerton the names of many spies. He had given the name of Rose Greenhow, the woman on 16th Street, who had given Sarah and Newbin the bottle of wine that morning off the hospital. Greenhow was soon to be placed under arrest. By Thursday of the first week, Sarah had already caught a woman who was leaving on the ferry to bring a supply of morphine across the salvin whiskey laced with a poisonous substance in her body. She was on her way to visit some northern soldiers. The salvin rebel women are the most demented about their cause, Kate said. Sarah told her about Dr. Briscoe's wife and how the woman had tried to shoot her and then kill Dr. Hammond. On Friday, Sarah spied a suspicious-looking woman who was about to board the ferry. She was dressed as a man, but she walked like a woman, something Sarah herself had been careful not to do in her tenure as a soldier. For another, she had not bothered to bind up her bosom. Sarah herself accosted her. Can you speak to us a minute, ma'am? The woman immediately tried to run, but Sarah had her hand firmly on her arm. There was a brief struggle and she almost did get away, but for Kate, who came to help, and in a minute the two of them had her off to the side. Kate led her to the small room where they confronted their suspects, examined her trunk, and found morphine, opium, quinine, a revolver, a pair of military spurs, and an iron projectile. The first gave her name as spurs and an iron projectile. She first gave her name as John Barton, then admitted she was Mrs. McCarty from Philadelphia. The iron projectile, she said, was her husband's invention. It could take a person's head off at 200 yards and she was on her way to Richmond to sell it to the Confederates. You're good, Kay told her at day end. I would have missed that one dressed as a man. I'm going to tell Alan that as far as I'm concerned, you're approved and should be started on your next assignment. August 24. Kate Bourne's house on H Street. 
I'm assigning you to Fort Greenhouse, Sarah, Major Allen said. They were seated under the oil lamp that hung over the table in Kate Warren's kitchen. On her day off, Fort Greenhouse, Sarah asked, was therefore named after the Washington socialite he just had placed under arrest. Kate had told her about the Rose Greenhouse past, but she'd been a society belle in President James Buchanan's administration. How she had the admiration of statesmen, diplomats, generals, and legislators. And in her 16th Street house, she'd entertained them all. She was a widow, Kate said. She lived with her eight year old sister. Two of her younger daughters were out of the West. One had just died. My operatives have been watching her house for weeks, named it Fort Greenhouse. Major Allen explained. My male detectives keep her under constant watch, but she has complained about them. She is a she-devil. I fear she is still gathering military information and sending it on to Richmond. She must be watched every minute, but I want you to go as a lady in waiting, if you will. A maid, earn her confidence so you can move about freely among her things so she trusts you. Do you think you can do that? Sarah didn't answer for a moment, not out of self-doubt, but because she was so enamored of the idea. She remembered the brick mansion that Newbin pointed out and how the woman had sent the sparkling wine and how Dr. Hammond had been so enraged that Sarah had accepted it. Had he known about Mrs. Greenhow then? Major Allen leaned forward at the table. Sarah, this woman is responsible for the deaths of thousands of Union soldiers at Manassas. It was because of her correspondence with the leaders in Richmond, her information about the number of troops we had and the exact time of their movements that we lost the battle. I'll do it, sir, Sarah said. Sadly, all good things must come to an end. So, I bid you good night, sleep tight, and don't let the bed bugs bite.